Giliotti is an associate professor at the CIA, where she teaches European and Mediterranean cuisines. She was formerly the chef owner of Atlanta's Grappa and appeared on season seven of Top Chef. Her book, Mediterranean Cooking, is a professional quality guide to the heart-healthy food, flavors, and techniques of Mediterranean cuisine. And Lynn was inspired by her own travels to study Mediterranean culture and cuisine. And she explains the region's diverse ingredients. She demystifies tricky techniques and shares her fresh take on the classics. And all of the photos, here's the cool part, were taken right in her own home kitchen. And she's joining me today on Amy's Table. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Amy? Thanks for having me. Well, glad to speak to you. What a beautiful book. And it is truly so clearly done by someone who has a passion for teaching people how to cook. And and so what inspired you, your travels? Well, my travels and my um, Italian grandfather and and my love of um, good food yeah. in general. And and when people wonder what Mediterranean cuisine is, it's not really easy to sum up, is it? There's no one particular Mediterranean cuisine. No, there really isn't. It's that's kind of that's kind of the one of the things that fascinates me about it because there are I think 21 different countries in the Mediterranean basin. So you have a lot of different ingredients and cooking te- techniques and flavor profiles to draw from, which is it's wonderful. So you never get bored. It's always interesting. Yeah, 21 countries. I think that's more than I realized. When people talk about Mediterranean cuisine, what do you think our mind generally goes to? I mean, what are some of the classics that most people are familiar with? You know, I think I think when people think about Mediterranean cuisine, that they're drawn to um, some of the Middle Eastern Standards, some of the mezes like the um, baba ganoush, hummus, falafel, yeah. And then I, in France, I think they generally think about bouillabaisse, um, Spain paella, but there's a lot more to it than that. And what are some of the really lesser known, might surprise us dishes or ingredients that you've highlighted in the book? Well, I think God, there there are so many, <laughs> so many of them. It's really kind of hard to pinpoint. Um, I think that um, one of the things that might surprise people is the cooking of southern France, which is what you might think it was much more Italian in style than French, because it's much lighter, it's got a lot of olive oil and fresh produce, and um, it just doesn't, you know, if you go there, you, you actually think that the, the food there seems, oh, well, this isn't what I thought French cooking was going to be like. Yeah, no sauces or... Right, right. Really natural flavors and, you know, delicious and um, just just good. Well, I think that so many of us hear about the Mediterranean diet or Mediterranean foods or cuisine being good for us. And I guess you just summed it up. Olive oil, fresh produce. I mean, what is it mm-hmm. that makes it such a healthy way to eat? Well, I think it's the uh, amounts that they consume uh, their their food in. For instance, uh, meat and fish are, they're sort of supplements. You know, we, as Americans, we like to saddle up to that, you know, 24-ounce ribeye <laughs> <laughs> with, with a tablespoon of vegetables on the side. But, and the Mediterranean diet would be much, much more laden with uh, vegetables and whole grains. Uh, not, not a lot of dairy, some dairy, but the, their food pyramid's almost, Upside down. Right. If the you, meat or the cheese. Ours. Yeah, meat or cheese would be a condiment, you know, or a little exactly. accent. 
Exactly. And, um, you know, they also, things, people in Mediterranean countries generally don't drive everywhere. <laughs> so they, they get a lot more exercise than we do. And, and one of the, one of the things also that, that I just thought about, not, not too recently, but I've been thinking about is that their food is not, um, it's not chemically engineered. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't done to their agricultural system uh, what we've done here in the United States. So thank, thank goodness we're sort of turning that around and doing a little bit more farm-to-table. But I think that generally their, their style of eating and agricultural practices and animal husbandry practices are, are um, a lot less toxic than ours are in the United States. So. Yeah, and, and that makes so much sense. Then when you look at a population as a whole who are much healthier... And you realize it has a lot to do. You know, you are what you eat after all. Well, I know one of the things that are, are coming as new ingredients for us in the States are, are some of the more unusual grains. And I know that one of the recipes that you've shared with me to put on my website is the farro salad. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the more unusual grains that are used in Mediterranean cooking? Sure. Uh, farro is one of my favorites. I've been using that for about... Oh, probably since it was reintroduced in the United States, it was it was um, the ancient grain of Roman warriors. It's really high in protein. It is not at all genetically engineered, and it's really really good for you. It's it's chewy. It's got texture. It's got flavor, and it's it's one of my staples, one of my go to grains. That and uh, kumut, which is also another one of my favorites. And how are they prepared? Easy for everybody? And now you can find these in most every grocery store. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think the kumut's a little bit harder to find, but you can find that online if you can't find it in a grocery store. You know, they're easy to prepare. They do take a little bit longer to cook because they are not um, uh, pre-prepared. Right, right. Processed. processed. So they are going to take a little bit longer to cook. Uh, The... The kumut in particular, uh, it really helps if you soak it for a few hours before you cook it. But they're really, really tasty. They've got a lot of protein. And, and your body actually has to work to, uh, to, to get those digested. So much better for you. You know, sometimes when I um, make rice, I will make lots of extra and keep it in the fridge. I've got some cold to do, you know, fried rice, or I've got some mm-hmm. to heat up the next day. Can you use that same sort of make ahead, keep it ready, planned overs in the fridge with farro? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Cook. It, since it takes a while to cook, cook more than you think you're going to use, and then use it in, you can make it in any style that you can prepare rice in, you can prepare farro in. And um, so cook it ahead of time and, you know, just have it in the fridge ready to um, do whatever you want to with it. Make the farro salad first, though, because the salad's delicious, really refreshing. It's a great summer dish since we're in the middle of the summer, and it tastes even better if you let it sit overnight in the refrigerator for um, 
a night and let it kind of marinate. It's really good. And we should say that there's lots of the ingredients that we might think of in a Mediterranean salad with the olives and onion and fennel and cucumber. And it sounds so delicious. Those are like some of my favorite flavors to put together. And as you say, with the farro being so high protein, that's a meal, right? You don't need to add anything else to the plate. No, you really don't. It's and it's really, really satisfying. It's amazing after you after you eat a dish with farro in it, you you're not really gonna miss the protein. Right, which is so important because we want to be satisfied, too. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lynn Giuliotti about her beautiful book, Mediterranean Cooking. It's an absolutely gorgeous book, and we talked about how healthy everything is with this. But also, don't think you're going to suffer because you're sharing a recipe for gelato with us. And let's talk a little bit about gelato, which is, oh, my God, so delicious. (laughs) It is. It is. I love gelato. Well, I love ice cream. I mean, I've, I've had a love of ice cream since I was five years old. And uh, my parents used to take me to a place in southern New Jersey in the summertime, and they made a, a custard-style um, ice cream. And it was just, well, they're still there, actually. It's Springer's in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. And their ice cream was just really rich and um, uh, not too sweet. Had a really nice mouthfeel and... It's just amazing, and gelato is really easy to easy to make. Um, you know, I say if if you go to Italy, you're going to find gelato. What if it's held at a certain temperature? It's always smooth and creamy, yeah. not liquidy, but a little bit less like standard American ice cream, which is held at a lower temperature. So this is our sort of Americanized version of gelato, but it's delicious. Oh, and I just, there's, no, what a treat it is. I'll tell you, I, I will never forget the first time I had gelato in Italy, and it was like, yum. But your recipe lets us make it in a standard home ice cream maker. Sure. Which is so nice. Many people might think they'd have to have special machinery or whatever to make gelato, but you can do it in your ice cream maker. Well, I'll tell you what, there's dinner. The farro salad, the homemade gelato, we're good to go. And Lynn has shared these recipes, but I'll put them on amystable.com. But you can also find Lynn Giuliati on Facebook. You can find her through the Culinary Institute of America. And you know what? Will you tell us one or two little tales of being on Top Chef before we let you go today? <laughs> well, um, let's let's say that I was probably ten years past my limit for being on Top Chef. Um, it, it's it was a lot of fun in a lot of ways, but it, you know you're just running constantly and sort of operating on not enough sleep. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I did pretty well considering my age. And although I did I did tear my meniscus while I was running across the kitchen floor. Oh. And, um, but you know, I really, I really enjoyed the cooking part of the show, and I really enjoyed meeting all those wonderful chef testants that were on my season. They're really all super nice people, and I, I like them a lot. I still keep in touch with them. Did you find that being on the show um, changed any facet of your cooking or your style or or your approach? Um, no, it didn't. It, you know, my, after 33 years of cooking, I think my style <laughs> and my approach was pretty set, but it did change my empathy for, you know, 
what my students go through on a daily basis in class. Oh, see, there you go. It's good to know you take away something that that, uh, made all that hard work worth it. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. Uh, Oh, that's great. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today about your book. Again, it's called Mediterranean Cooking by Lynn Giuliotti, and it's absolutely beautiful book. you got to check it out, and I'll put a link to all today's information on amystable.com. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you, Amy. You're listening to Amy's Table. It's Amy's Table. A girl's guide to living. With Amy Tobin on Q102. If there is one thing that will bring the family together for breakfast, it's the smell of waffles baking. A really delicious waffle is easy to make if you follow a few simple steps. First, you want to start by getting to know your waffle maker. In addition to reading the instruction manual, make sure you know how much batter it takes to fill the iron without causing it to overflow. I use a half cup measure to fill mine. And I like to separate the eggs for the waffles, beating the whites until they're fluffy and peaks form, and then gently fold them into the batter. Gentle? That's the key here. While you want to create a thick, pourable batter, you don't want to overmix it, or you'll end up with a chewy waffle. Crisp on the outside, fluffy on the inside is what we're after. And I love to add blueberries, nuts, and chocolate chips to waffles. The best way to do that is to sprinkle them over the batter in the waffle iron. Use a small spoon to cover your add-ons with a little batter. And it's really important to preheat the waffle maker. Most have some kind of an indicator for readiness, and some irons will let you know when the waffle's done, too. But I like to rely on the best indicator of all, and that's steam. Waffles let off lots of steam as they bake. When the steam stops, that means the waffle is done. For most people, the hardest part of the waffle process is making enough so everyone can sit down together to eat them. And here's the way around that. Set your oven to 225 degrees. Place a cooling rack on a baking sheet in the oven. As each waffle's done, place it on the cooling rack. Keeping it warm on the rack is what keeps it crisp. If you find you've made too many waffles, Cool them completely and then freeze them well wrapped. Voila, you have homemade toaster waffles. And if they don't fit in your toaster, you can reheat them in a 325 degree oven for about five or six minutes. I have a great base recipe for waffles from my cookbook, Amy's Table, Food for Family and Friends. And I love to change it up depending on my mood and what's in the house. I can turn my lemon blueberry waffles into gingerbread waffles with peach sauce just by replacing the poppy seeds and lemon peel in the waffle batter with cinnamon and ground ginger and cloves. And for the sauce, I replace my blueberries with drained canned peaches and lemon juice with a little cinnamon and ginger. Both of these recipes are on amystable.com.